Welcome to the Life Itself podcast, where we discuss emerging culture and tech to help facilitate the paradigm shift we so desperately need. Welcome to another episode of the Life Itself podcast. Today, as part of our Exploring Social Transformation series, we're sharing a conversation with author and speaker Jeremy Lent. This conversation was originally posted on our YouTube channel back in September 2021 as part of the Imaginary Society Forum. This forum, which was curated by Life Itself in association with Untitled, provided an online meeting place for the exercising of social imagination through practice and theory. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you want to find out more about the Imaginary Society Forum, follow the link in the episode description. Hope you enjoy. It's really a real pleasure today to be welcoming Jeremy uh, Jeremy Lent, who's an author and a speaker. Uh, his work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. He's been described by Guardian journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. And he's now written two books, or his, and his award-winning book, The Pattern Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meeting, was published in 2017 and explores the way we as humans have made meaning from the cosmos right from the beginning of, as it were, history from our hunter-gatherer ancestors to the today. And his new book, which has just been published, is The Web of Meaning integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. And it's definitely, a, I'd say, a kind of a companion to the first because it offers a coherent and intellectually solid foundation for a worldview based on connectedness um, and ecological flourishing that could lead humanity to a sustainable future. So first of all, a massive thank you, Jeremy, for joining us and from California relatively early. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, so happy to be here with you, Rufus. And yeah, looking forward to the conversation and thank you also everyone who's joined from all over wherever you are over the world whatever time zone so i wanted to start jeremy in your in your new book i think you have this quite good right at the beginning you kind of describe this character of uncle bob and you're trying to describe kind of the the, the as it were the maybe the dominant or default kind of view in which or kind of thinking that goes on maybe you could talk a little bit about that of like and, 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 you know, that Uncle Bob type character and what Uncle Bob's kind of view is. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was trying to sort of start the, the book out with <clears throat> sort of like a, um, a an experience that pretty much any of us uh, can really connect with, you know. And um, so I, I, I call it the the conversation. Um, and it's one I've had. <clears throat> um, and felt incredibly frustrated by, and I'm sure I'm, I, I, I imagine everyone here who's listening in has had at least um, one or more of these conversations. And it goes something like this. With mine, <clears throat> I said it in this kind of little tea party in London. I grew up in London, but it could be anywhere in the world. And it's like, you know, a, a group of people getting together and <clears throat> somebody's talking about how, oh, we can make the world a better place, pretty much exactly as you were just describing with um, like, you know, imagining a different kind of world. And then, yeah, and other people going, yeah, that's right, we should do this and that. And then Uncle Bob turns up and then Uncle Bob says, let me tell you about it. Once you've been around the block a few times like I have, <clears throat> you know, you get to know that 
all your ideas about changing the world, it's not going to happen like this. Like, let's just face it. Human beings are selfish. <clears throat> We're competitive. You know, a whole reason to be here is just to look out for number one. And, you know, we, we, we got to make what we can of the world. And, and so all these ideas that we just hear about in the, the sort of world out there <clears throat> get encapsulated here. And he's saying, you know, and capitalism is actually, it works better than any other system. We've tried all the other systems. Look what happened to communism. And, the, and you know why it works? It works because it harnesses that selfish instinct. Even nature itself is selfish. It, you heard it, the selfish gene, right? You know, ever since life began, it's always been about one gene trying to outcompete the other. Humans did it better than any other and species. That's why we're the top dog right now. And, you know, even within humanity, we're all fighting each other out. And let's just face it, that's how it is. So all your attempts to try to make a better world, you know, all we can do is just make things a little bit better, but we've got technology. And with that, we can fix all these problems. So, you know, don't worry about it. Well, technology will save the day with capitalism because that's how it works best. And like everyone goes, oh no, I've heard this before. Conversation ends, <clears throat> it's all over. And in a way, I, I started yep. the, the book with that sort of Uncle Bob character. Because in, you could just really imagine this whole book, this new book, The Web of Meaning, as being a refutation of Uncle Bob, basically saying, you got it so wrong. Every one of these things that we just heard, <clears throat> not just, they're not just dangerous, they're not just driving our whole civilization to the precipice, as it's become, becoming only too clear year after year, but they're plain wrong. What we think are scientifically validated truths about humanity or about nature turn out to be these <clears throat> myths that basically got created in like the 17th century by <clears throat> a few brilliant thinkers at the time, but they've been embellished and embellished since then. And in recent decades, science has begun to show how wrong these myths are, but it hasn't yet ingrained itself in mainstream thinking. So that's a, another thing I'm trying to do in the book is show what science actually tells us and how amazingly that intersects with some of the great insights of wisdom traditions from around the world over the millennia. So could you give me maybe just at this point, uh, I mean, I've got another question I want to come to, but maybe at this point, one, one example and a <laughs> refutation. So I mean, just to read you, I think there's a, you sell distilled to their essence. And I'm just quoting for the book. These themes come down to a few basic building blocks that this is Uncle Bob's. Humans are selfish. All creatures are selfish. In fact, selfish genes are the driving force of evolution. And nation, nature is just a very complex machine, and human ingenuity has, for the most part, figured it out. And the modern world is the spectacular result of technology enabled by the market forces of capitalism. And in spite of occasional setbacks, it's basically working. And what, just to pick an example of one of those where you think, as you said, not only is it, and we'll come to that, of like, what are the consequences of these worldviews? But what's an example of just one there and, and that kind of came in the 17th century? And as you said, often was brilliant or kind of, you know, there was value in it, but is basically at some level kind of actually mistaken. Yeah, sure, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, to begin with, maybe the best one, uh, because it's so powerful and it's so refutable, is this notion of the selfishness. Um, I mean, um, and really, the, again, we can go back to the 17th century for this uh, selfish human being there and Hobbes, this Hobbesian idea 
that um, if human beings were left alone, it would be like this um, life for man would be brute, nasty, brutish and short and everyone out for themselves. That's why he wrote this book, The Leviathan, which was intended to show how we need this Leviathan, this kind of state to kind of impose morality on these uh, horrendous, selfish, competitive human beings. Um, and even so, I mean, that that's one of these things we got back from from that period. And, um, you know, for centuries, it was like the Rousseau versus Hobbes, you know, Rousseau um, was uh, sort of his ideas were simplified in this notion of the noble savage, even though he never actually used that phrase. But um, but that that was the general idea. And it's actually turned out that um, if you look now at what um, leading anthropologists and ethologists, uh, primatologists, especially people who study humans and how they evolved differently from other primates, from other you know, big apes like orangutans or chimpanzees or gorillas, it turns out that actually it was those millions of years when humans diverged from other primates, it was our um, ability to cooperate in groups that really defined us uniquely as humans. So in fact, yeah. to the exact contrary of what we're led to believe, actually as, as our, our pre-human hominid ancestors evolved what are called moral emotions. So like, we actually deeply feel things like um, it, like shame if we do something wrong or um, anger um, if we see other people taking advantage of others. And we like in, intuitively love things like generosity and people not to be basically assholes. Um, and this notion of, and things like altruism. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, like we're told by a lot of mainstream thinking, there's this famous phrase, scratch an altruist and you'll see um, a hypocrite bleed because the whole notion is that <clears throat> because of our selfish genes, actually, ultimately, we're all selfish. The opposite is true. And um, as humans, we naturally want to be part of a group. We care about our group. We've evolved a group identity. Um, so what our modern society has to do is train us to not actually be in touch with some of our truly deeply felt human emotions in order to um, be like a, a fully functioning part of this society we're in right now. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's a great, so this example, even just this basic aspect where uh, this kind of, and even in a simplified, we're sort of, we're sort of selfish or self-interested. That's like, that's just the way things are. And we have a system that harnesses that it is, that's one of those things, which in fact, as you say, and just to say to people maybe listening, I don't know that, that, discovery and i think as it but i mean there's but i think it's i'm not but i'm getting the right um in the in the 90s but the pride the, the work in anthropology is really quite recent the last 40 or 50 years probably even the last 20 or 30 that's become consensus about that level of cooperation in in early hominids versus other 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 animals mm -hmm. um has really become clear and as you say this innate sense of fairness that one of the things that make us function and that is that aspect and i think the other one i think in your first book that you do a great job of summarizing that work in the patterning instinct is also the egalitarianism the evidence we now yeah. have that early gatherer hunter bands are extremely egalitarian that the the uh, the inequality and hierarchical structure is really comes with what we would call civilization the last eight 
on 8,000, 9,000 years of human history after we kind of fell from Eden, as it were. Um, so I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I did, I don't want to go, I won't, I might come back to it, but I also can recommend people reading uh, Jeremy's excellent summary of that in, in his first book and, and his second, but seeing the patterning instinct. I yeah. want to come to a question a bit personally here, which is in the other thing that really intrigued me is at the beginning, you also mentioned that you yourself kind of dwelled in that worldview, like you to some extent and, and your background, I mean, you, you went to Silicon Valley, you started a successful company, you did an MBA at Chicago, University of Chicago, which is famously uh, an ego, a right, you know, kind of sort of right wing economics. So a little bit, is that right? That this is something that you operated in at one point? Mm -hmm. And if so, I'd love to hear both about that, but also personally, what had, what, what led to you kind of a shift for you? Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, and, you know, before I talk my, about myself, I, I do want to emphasize that thing about uncle Bob, because on the one hand, it's like we, I sort of, laugh about him a little bit at the beginning and it's kind of it's kind of funny in a way but also what is really important is to realize that each of us has uncle bob within us i mean even if we feel like yeah we've achieved a sense of liberation from those ideas or whatever we have to recognize any of us who's born and raised um, in this dominant culture right now, we inculcate these ideas right from the very earliest moments of our lives, even like pre-verbally, like just as tiny little infants, we begin to uh, like incorporate these cultural elements within us. Um, and I think, you know, it's a work of our whole lifetime uh, to, you know, to use another uh, sort of paradigm or, or description about it, to decolonize our own minds, you know, to recognize how deeply some of these ideas are embedded within our thinking. <clears throat> and that's true of me, and it's probably true of all of us. So I just want to say that because it does bring a little bit of humility into the picture and stops us from othering the Uncle Bob's like, oh, we're the good ones here and they're the enemy and we need to overcome this ridiculous way of thinking. We need to recognize that we're all in this together. Um, and by doing that, it can open up like a lot more pathways for and possibilities. So yeah, so how how am I, you know, how was I implicated in this? And 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 yeah, still am in terms of <clears throat> the legacy for me, you know, of, of those elements. Well, what's interesting, I guess, <clears throat> um, is that when I grew up in England in my in my teens um, and as an adolescent uh, and my early 20s, I was I was the total rebel. I mean, I, I went to, I, I, I grew up in London. I, I went to Cambridge um, and I didn't want anything to do with what I saw as this ridiculous old fashioned uh, colonialist society that lived in the past of the, the sort of great British empire. And <clears throat> I couldn't believe when I went to Manual College, Cambridge, this is 19. 1978 or whatever, um, you went to wear these ridiculous old-fashioned gowns to go to the dining hall. I said, screw this. And um, within a year, I was living in a squat on the other side of town, hanging out with these anarchists and just having a grand old time. Um, and in fact, when I, I left England in 1981, because I just wanted to leave Margaret Thatcher's England and this, what I just thought it was this kind of very narrow-minded country. And I, as I look back, the grand irony is that I went to the United States as this escape. Um, and what drew me there actually were all the sort of videos as I grew up in the 70s of like 
Woodstock and looking at hippies in the States and going, that's where I, my mind can expand. That's where I can, I can meet these people. And I wish I could have been there in Woodstock sort of thing. And of course I landed in Reagan's America, <clears throat> but I didn't realize that at the time, it takes a while before you get to see all these things. And actually um, I ended up um, meeting and, and ultimately married um, somebody um, who had lived through the whole hippie era. And then she had left and spent years hanging out in South America, um, in the highlands of Bolivia and Peru with the indigenous people. So I was like, yes, this is what, this is the person I want to help take me to some other recognition of reality. So I was like all there. <clears throat> but the, uh, the irony was she had these two kids who um, became my stepsons and she wanted to, in her words, go straight. She wanted to give the kids um, uh, the benefit of a good upbringing so they could um, have full access to privilege and uh, whatever they wanted to do in their lives. And I bought into that with her. And so uh, we were actually hanging out in Guatemala uh, on this beautiful lake, Lake Atitlan with indigenous people. And we decided to go back into what we call the belly of the beast. And I would get an MBA and I would um, become part of this mainstream society, just temporarily was what, what we said, you know, just to, uh, to give them the good start in life. And I ended up getting sucked in to this like the world of Uncle Bob. Um, and there I began to learn things like at the University of Chicago, these messages that actually capitalism is good because it does harness, it does make things most efficient and you can sort of do well by doing good. And um, I started, uh, um, yeah, after graduating, I started um, one of those internet, first internet companies back in the first internet boom. And of all things, <clears throat> it was a company that was a, the first online credit card issuer that allowed you to actually apply for credit card online, be approved in real time. You could upload your picture um, into the card by dragging. This is the early days of the internet. It was like pretty like magic. You dragged an image into this little box and boom, this is what your card was going to look like. And I, the company you know, worked, started out great. I took it public. I was the CEO. It was this exciting time. Um, and I felt this was the Uncle Bob myth. I felt I was doing a great thing. I was helping people get access to what they wanted with their consumer lifestyles by enabling them to, you know, um, consolidate their debts at a lower interest rate and, and access more debt and buy things more. Um, it, it felt great. You know, I was doing well by doing good. Um, and this all crashed for me when um, my uh, wife at the time got sick <clears throat> and um, she passed away some years back, but she got quite ill. I left the company to look after her when it was still in its early days, <clears throat> kind of too soon. And it became one of the internet busts, you know, it went from the dot-com boom to the dot-com bust. And this was one of those companies that kind of collapsed at that time. And I went through this period where it seemed like everything I'd built around my life was collapsing around me. Um, not just the company I'd built and uh, <clears throat> the friends I'd made, I sort of lost touch with, but <clears throat> my, uh, wife was like my own, my only meaningful, deep relationship I'd had in my life. As she got sicker, she kind of went through cognitive decline. And I kind of lost the person that I'd loved. I looked after her for years, but she went through all kinds of um, <clears throat> very, very, very difficult sort of bipolar type episodes um, and uh, sort of borderline dementia and aggression. And 
And I kind of, I went through basically a purgatory for years, looking after her to the last days of her life. Um, but it was, I <clears throat> was going through this period, it's like a crucible. I realized all, all the values that I built this life around, it kind of collapsed. And I wanted, to, I realized I could really still lead my life in a different direction, but I was determined it was going to be meaningful. And I started asking this question, what is truly meaningful? I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. I wanted it to be a path that I could really believe with all of me, my head and my heart and my spirit, whatever that was. And that's what I was trying to uncover. And so I spent years and years reading voraciously to try to sort of peel the layers of the onion of where our ideas come from. But it wasn't just reading, it was embodied experience. This is where I discovered meditation. I discovered embodied practices, I Taoist, traditional Chinese um, practices. And I discovered, you know, things like dance. And, and I started to discover a whole different way of making sense of things. And as I began to do that, the sea, I began to sort of put together these ideas that formed the basis of both the patterning instinct, that was my sort of jigsaw puzzle, if you will, of how we came to these ideas in the first place from all these prior ideas ever since uh, humans evolved as humans. But, and equally importantly, this book, The Web of Meaning, as, because as time went on, I began to realize there is a different way of making sense of things than what we're told. And I began to see the answers are all out there. It's not like me coming up with the answers. Um, I was uh, basically discovering these, almost like these sparks of light of different answers that have been developed by scientists, by traditional thinkers. And so I viewed <clears throat> what I've sort of done in, in this book is just try to weave together the answers in a more integrated weaving or basket, if you will, um, which began to make sense to me over the years. I mean, just to pause, first of all, thank you so much for sharing and sharing so powerfully. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating because I think to, to say something for myself um, here, that's, that, I mean, just the story itself, but I, what I want to emphasize to people and is we are also a civilization love it was kind of in love with our heads <laughs> yes right and, and one of the things is that often um one I, well let me just point to two things i think you said one was that as you went into that world as you went back to chicago sort of almost not obviously even though you come from this background where you were like i really want to be sort of by kind of osmosis that term or the people you're around your kind of view shift and i want to emphasize the power of that to people that we kind of believe together and i think that was one insight even from the many things that you just shared there the way that we and then the second thing was you had there was sort of some kind of quite profound experience in this caring for your wife uh during this incredibly difficult period which really like shook you out of it because once we're in that view and particularly when it's a dominant view particularly when it because the other views are sort of alternative they're often minority they're often for example not financially as success materially as rewarding or successful when you're in the dominant one it's kind of working it's very it really takes something to kind of get out of that right uh, particularly in that case where you're on your own and you had this incredible shock and then the third thing that you said was you went on this deep inquiry there was a question really deep inside you of what brings meaning to us as human beings yes which I think, by the way, you emphasize in your book a lot, the kind of, I think the obvious, the kind of materially existential crisis, which is us hitting 
or surpassing the planetary boundaries, us, you know, the climate crisis, the ecological crisis in general. But I think the other thing implicit in, in obviously, it's, you've said it explicitly, but the meaning crisis, the other mm -hmm. aspect, and you don't emphasize it maybe quite as much, which is that the, when it shows up, and I think in the mental health statistics, it shows up in the satisfaction with life, it shows up in t every TV program that you watch coming out of America, in a sense, is this dissatisfaction. I mean, what right. Buddhists called this dukkha, you know, the suffering, that despite we have it, you know, and as I, you know, and my friend Liam, like I said, you know, imagine that we all had Porsches or imagine we all got 10 times richer. We don't think that's going to make us 10 times happier. But you went on this inquiry. And I want to think the third thing that I heard was that it was both an intellectual, but also a deeply embodied experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also very, a very powerful point that that's out of that personal story. And I think because what that brings me to is one question in which we might come back to towards the end of the conversation, because I do want to loop back, but yeah. I, well, maybe you address, but I think it's one of the, the really big questions is how does a shift happen? Because to kind of come back to your book, what, what to put it, if I, if I would summarize and please comment is what one of the big claims is what is causing the condition that we're in? What is causing the source of things that are not working especially which are visibly not working the climate crisis other aspects of society come back to these views espoused by uncle bob and particularly what also keeps us locked in where we are is this view that that's the way it is and that worldviews are so powerful because they are like water to the fish yes they're what we live in and we cannot even see and that's what's so powerful about them and they only become explicit every so often and right. What you then talk about is that there's a new one. And so what I want to, you also share very clear in your book, an, an alternative. But I think one intriguing question is how do those shifts come about? And I guess yeah. maybe I'm just going to ask that question now, because I think I want to come back to even what they are. But clearly, you know, maybe to go back, there was some shift from a hunter gatherer, you know, thousands of years ago, we didn't have capitalism. Thousands of years ago, right. you, so how do you think these kind of shifts come about in kind of cultural consciousness? Yes, that's a, a key, key question. Um, and it's especially important in our age today, because we are undergoing one of these major, major paradigm shifts in, in our whole ontology. Are in the whole human experience, every aspect of it, from meaning making to how we live our lives, et cetera. The big question is, where is that shift taking us? Because it could go in um, some fundamentally different directions. Um, but if we do look historically at these shifts, and the first thing to realize is they're very rare. Um, a worldview is one of the most stable, one of the most powerful, resilient um, sort of phenomena. Uh, in the human experience. So we see, uh, you see the first shift if you look back in history, as you say, when we went from nomadic hunter-gatherers, how humans spent 95% of our species history um, to agriculture. So that was basically shift number one. I'll come back to that, but just to give a sort of historical timeline, yeah. if you will. Um, <clears throat> then um, within agrarian civilizations, that also remained very stable um, for thousands of years. And um, as I look in the patterning instinct, the next shift actually was kind of ontological, which really was with the ancient Greeks where a different kind of worldview arose, but that was a little bit more subtle. You wouldn't have seen that in the way 
people really live their lives from day to day. But the big major shift in the human experience then happened with the scientific revolution in Europe in the 17th century, which due to colonialism, imperialism, and the power of, uh, of the Europeans then at the time led to a global shift, very destructive global shift over the next few generations, which now, which laid the seeds for our current worldview and our current dominant paradigm now. And now we're undergoing one of these uh, extreme shifts in the human experience. Um, and just to give, and we can come back to this, but what's not clear right now is, will this shift in this 21st century lead to one of three possible outcomes, which I kind of show at the end of the patterning instinct. Um, one could be total collapse. Um, there's um, a lot of reasons to believe that if we go in this current rate, everything, this whole entire edifice of global civilization is going to collapse. Utter disaster, catastrophe for billions of people, not a good thing, um, but very much possible as yeah. one of the scenarios. Yeah. Another scenario with um, could be morally even more reprehensible than a collapse is what I call techno split, which basically the elites, and we're sort of seeing this right now, the elites in the global north or even other parts of the global south, but those that um, the sort of 0.1% of, of, of people in this world fortress barricade themselves. They enjoy their technology. They basically take advantage of the collapsing world out there to just make sure the resources keep flowing to them. And then you have this split where people get genetically enhanced. They connect through um, their sort of neurally implanted internet and they, they just have a grand old time ex exploring new ways of being human and um, while the rest of the world collapses. Um, another uh, morally reprehensible path and that could be the path we're on right now. And then the only other scenario is like an, actually a flourishing humanity and a stable living earth where we regenerate the earth. The scenario that almost all of us as human beings would actually want, but this is yes. the one that's hardest to get to because this is what we, to get to there, we have to shift and um, not so much the, and we have to shift things like the economics and how the technology works and stuff like that, but ultimately the underlying worldview, which is what we're talking about here. The ontology. That has to shift, the ontology to get to that alternative way of human flourishing. Those are the only real three scenarios that we can expect. And, but no matter what, we know we're going through this paradigm shift. So how does this happen? So now to come back then to that, that key question, Ultimately, um, wait, 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 just one second. Can I? Can yeah, you, sure, sure. People listening, just for what? Yeah, and also you get to take a sip of water for a moment. You, it's just brilliant what you're sharing. I want to just to give it a concrete for a second, and it, this could just be very short. What's an example to make it concrete about a worldview? I mean, you gave an example, which is: Are people selfish, or are they? And it's not an either or. Like. Are they selfish or cooperative? Just to be clear, to be fair, you're not suggesting that one is exactly one or the other. The question often is there's a sense of like on this, you know, are we mostly selfish, mostly competitive? Are we mostly cooperative? That's a key right. view about the nature of humanity. But can you give another kind of maybe example and, and, and walk it through from, for example, gatherer hunters saw the world in this way. 
Then there was this shift, and it was uh, with agriculture, and we saw the world this way. Yeah, and then it sure. you know, walk walk to maybe just one area or an example like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a a, a great way to look at it, <clears throat> and maybe the the place to begin is just to look for a moment at our current worldview. Yes, um, yeah. and ultimately, <clears throat> our current worldview is a worldview based on separation. And um, basically, what the worldview says is that, um, <clears throat> well, for starters, um even within our own beings, we're, we're separate, like our minds are separate from our bodies. We've got some sort of mind or soul or whatever we call that, that's separate from our embodied existence. So we're separate even within ourselves. We're separate from other human beings. Um, our identity is very much this individual. When I die, it's all over, unless I believe in my soul that's gonna stay. And then like, who knows what happens, goes to heaven or whatever. Um, and um, so we're separate from other beings, which means that we, we should exploit and extract as much as we can from taking advantage of them because hell, like Uncle Bob says, I need to look out for number one. And just as importantly, maybe ultimately most important, we're separate from the rest of life. We're separate from the rest of nature. And in fact, all of nature is just a machine um, that doesn't have any intrinsic value. Nature is a resource. Um, and the world is this kind of, if we like, <clears throat> break it down to its different parts. It's all basically this little mechanism of different um, things connecting together, like selfish genes or molecules just working together. Yeah. Um, and as humans, um, our, our job basically is to exploit that nature as much as we can for our own benefit, since we're separate. And by the way, that means my benefit more than yours, because I'm separate from you. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll try to make you feel a bit better and think you're part of my community in some way. But ultimately, I'm looking out for number one. And so it's all based on separation. Um, and this is where <clears throat> what... <clears throat> um, what we can see if we go all the way back from hunter-gatherers. So, so Jer Jeremy, can I, wait, I want to make just coming because you're about to explain that point, which is great. I just want to emphasize something to maybe to listeners here, which is fascinating, mm -hmm. the power of worldviews. And, and it also, I think, illustrates something about also the kind of political bankruptcy of, like, I don't know if people notice, but one of the things that we live in is an age without much vision. You know, like, mm -hmm. hey, what are we, you know, most of the time, what are we going to do to get out of here? Well, you know, Communism didn't work. Well, we're left with the small improvements to the system we've got. What I wanted to illustrate there is this particular view about, let's say, nature's resource to be exploited. That that was common to both basically left wing thought and right wing thought. You know, for example, I was you know I reading um, um, One Dimensional Man recently, and you know it's just straight up there, 1964. This is modern kind of Marxist critique of capitalism, and it's kind of nature. You know, there what we need to do is exploit nature better. It's still there. It's just to illustrate to people on the call that whether you are on the left or generally on the right, um, at least in, in the, the modern era of 50, 60 years ago, you would kind of agreed that we're going to, you know, right. exploit nature to the maximum. It would just be the, 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 the kind of the water in which we swim. Um, right. Obviously, that's maybe changed in recent times. But anyway, let me just come back to, to, mm -hmm. to, to you. And you were about to say, so that example where the separation at these three levels within ourselves, mind, kind of body, from other human beings, we are these atomic individuals, and finally from nature. How how did that look under the you know what we imagine was kind of we don't know for exactly, but in kind of prehistory, as it were, under our right. gatherer hunters, uh, or you know, from modern gatherer hunters, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> you have to be careful about imputing too much from 
modern hunter-gatherers because their, their lifestyles, their way of living, their way of thinking even has been so inculcated by <clears throat> generations of oppression and then having to like um, accept some of the belief systems or whatever around them. So it, it's tricky, but anthropologists have done it, especially anthropologists at the beginning of the 20th century <clears throat> who were there um, looking at groups that were still living their, um, their lives pretty much uh, uncompromised from um, modern society. And then, you know, you can also look at, at anth um, the findings of anthropology in ancient uh, carvings and all kinds of stuff. So I think we can take pretty much um, as, a, as a given right now, what anthropologists as a consensus have discovered, which is that for early nomadic hunter-gatherers, they saw everything in a fundamentally different way. <clears throat> they saw nature not as something separate, basically like a giving parent. Um, their sort of root metaphor, if you will, of making sense of the universe was family. So nature was a parent. All other living beings were relatives because nature was a parent. So it just made sense. So, uh, and, and all different beings, whether they were trees, animals, um, they had spirits and those spirits were part of this shared same family. So of course they, as nomadic hunter-gatherers, they hunted, but they didn't, um, when they would kill another animal for food, they still honored the spirit of that creature. When they cut a tree down and they honored the spirit of that tree. And it was a fundamentally different way of relating to everything around them. They saw the intrinsic value of everything in life around them. They didn't even have to question it. It was just part of their ontology. Um, and they could trust nature. They didn't sort of see um, nature as something, as a, as a power that destroyed their lives. Quite the contrary. If it was dry in this particular area, they'd move to an another part of uh, of the landscape where they knew they could get food from here or there. So there was a fundamental sense of belonging. And you still see this today, um, even in some, some Aboriginal groups in Australia, um, when, when uh, a kid reaches puberty or whatever, they'll sort of go out into, um, it, into the bush and they'll basically talk to the spirits, like introducing their kid as if you'd introduce them to a long lost relative who's who you know, has just sort of flown in and you say no here's so and so and you know and her mother was so and so and you know she's like this and so they they sort of see everything as being truly interconnected that was the hunt together way of making sense of things that shifted with agriculture because that's when people began to settle down and in fact it was sedentism more than agriculture itself that made these separations because then you'd start to develop, you'd start to have property. And, and but with agriculture, you'd start to, the first level of separation began. People would put up the fences to separate what they cultivated from the rest of nature. And those farmers that were lucky enough to be successful would begin to accrue wealth, which you could keep because you were staying in one place. So then they'd start to be able to employ those who are less successful to farm their field. And then they'd put up the fences to keep um, their wealth um, separate from those of others. So for the first time in human history, roughly 10,000 years ago, came this notion of intrinsic value of things like property, wealth itself, which had never even been conceived of as ideas until that time. And along with that, of course, came hierarchy and specialization, which led to the beginnings of civilization. But the hierarchy itself that people saw in their lives began to actually shift 
their worldview. And people started to see nature no longer as this giving parent, but these kind of gods out there, up there in the sky that needed to be propitiated. So just like if the big chieftain came, you'd have to like kowtow and kiss his feet and say, yes, great chieftain, you are the greatest person. You are so wonderful because, you know, you know, otherwise he's going to take your stuff away. You'd have to do the same with the gods. That's where worship began. You know, oh, great God. You basically take this flattery and hope that the God will treat you well so you don't get um, your crops flooded out and all that kind of stuff. So this is where hierarchy began in the human experience. And along with that came the patriarchy because those um, people who accrued wealth, those uh, the men wanted to make sure that their next generation could benefit from their wealth after they've died. So then suddenly women became not just like shared uh, co-participants in community, but a resource to be able to, um, <clears throat> to then sort of uh, leave, create a new generation. And it became important that things like virginity uh, before marriage and all these horrendous um, like phenomena of the patriarchy that's so embedded in our lives only started these last 10,000 years. And for all the differences in agrarian civilizations, they essentially had these same value systems <clears throat> until uh, the last few hundred years with the rise of the scientific revolution. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And in your book, I mean, just to mention people, if you, you cite the Epic of Gilgamesh, basically old, one of the oldest myths we have and the story of Enkidu, and who, who basically kind of is, is a wild, is a gatherer hunter. And it's also this vision in which civilization, because the book is written in Ura, it's written um, basically in, in quote unquote civilization. But he laments, I was once, I was once, he said, I was once in the wilderness with all the treasure I wished. And he kind of gets seduced by this harlot in the story. He goes to the capital city, kind of throws off his wild man aspect and, and, and sort of loses his innocence. Um, and I think this is one thing I just want to emphasize. I, I kind of sometimes, I don't know what to call it. I call it, and you mentioned it at the beginning of your book where it's called The Ascent of Man. I call it the Nike swoosh version of history versus what, uh, what it used to be. So the old story was sort of like those pictures I think we see of the ascent of man, right? You know, there's the, the, there's the ape, there's the kind of slightly standing ape, there's the more developed hominid, and then there's modern modern man. And our view of kind of, human societal development and maybe even cultural development and you mentioned another great story which maybe you tell but at the beginning of your pattern instinct that was the vision of also sort of societally which was you know i don't know how we draw it but it would be you know there were gatherer hunters then they kind of got a small city then they got a bigger city then they got modern skyscrapers and what we now know is that 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 period from the kind of gatherer hunter to agricultural shift was actually a almost certainly a significant decline, not in, in human well-being, um, not in, and you know in health terms, in other terms, and as you've just described, it was this moment when we went from a relatively egalitarian setup to a hierarchical setup, and I think you make yes. that mm -hmm. that point from a kind of gods, even the gods or the nature existed as parent, to as you mentioned in most agricultural religions, you're constantly. Mm -hmm kind of begging the gods for rain. You're constantly at the mercy of the gods. Um, you're constantly trying to keep them happy. Um, you know, it, it's, a very, it's a very dramatically revealing sense of, of, of what life suddenly had become. Right. Um, but maybe you can tell us then a bit more, like what was it then happened with it? So there's this change, if you like, in this fundamental worldview, we, we're sort of interwoven with nature. 
um, maybe in almost state of innocence. There's not a lot of sophistication, but we're sort of one uh, with, with it in a way or interwoven with it as parent. Then there's this separation and suddenly hierarchy has arisen suddenly, but there, there, there must also probably be some degree of like, we have the beginnings of sort of science, some degree of science in those places. We have writing, the elite has, uh, you know, time. Uh, what happened next in terms of like an example yeah. of worldview shift in this kind of area? Yeah, well, and 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 here's what's interesting because we're if ultimately the question is how did worldviews shift? That first shift happened through external reality changing the lived experience of humans, and then right. through that external reality, people began to make sense of the world in a different way. So just make that concrete. What what you mean is people went from being ga what nomadic gatherer hunters to having to be settled agriculturally. That's right. And that, that, that kind of, and that happened basically probably because of uh, basically resource scarcity. Is, well, is actually it didn't. I mean, we, we don't need to. Um, go oh, to why? But what, what's interesting is it happened actually through this kind of self-organized process, which Jared Diamond does a, the best job of explaining and um, how, um, and also because of the Holocene, because of stable climate. Um, but what would generally happen is people would um, do things like, for example, like leave behind seeds that they had collected. Yes. And those seeds started to grow and then they'd look after those seeds. And before, after a few generations, um, they needed to look after the seeds um, in order to maintain what they were used to. And so it's almost like humans domesticated themselves by this right. kind of self-organized process. So it's not actually because of scarcity, but kind of the opposite. They created the scarcity through their own actions without realizing it. But anyway, we, I mean, I, I, I don't want to depend too much on that, but yeah. here's what's interesting with this next stage in the scientific revolution, what we see, if we think of that first- What about the, Gre what about the Greeks? You mentioned something- Yeah, well, so with, with the Greeks, they came up with a different worldview of that was um, basically, rather than seeing this kind of hierarchy of the gods, they were the first to come up with this idea that there was something fundamentally um, different in a different dimension, that there was this kind of split universe where there was like an ancient, uh, some, some sort of eternal, um, good out there, like Plato's idea of this Reason. kind of split universe um, and the world of this polluted place. And humans became split along with that, that we had this soul that everyone, all, all indigenous groups see us as having some sort of spirit, but this was more like an embodied spirit, like this thing that had some sort of material quality. But the Greeks said, no, actually the spirit is purely associated with the head, with the mind, with the brain, the soul, which is connects us to divinity. And the body is this, um, this kind of housing, this prison essentially, where our soul is imprisoned. But <clears throat> that's, that Greek way of thinking it infiltrated Christian thought, but there was only, and it sort of became part of this dualistic worldview that um, occurred in the West. But what was fundamentally different with the scientific revolution was they took this split way of thinking and they saw, and they, they sort of took the whole, they took it to the whole next level of looking at the rest of the world as actually a machine. And they, they still, these great, scientific thinkers in the 17th century all believed in God. They thought they were doing God's work by using their reason to sort of unlock the secrets of the universe that was written in the language of mathematics, as Galileo would say or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but they saw 
the world is this gigantic complex machine that God had constructed. And their job was to figure out how this machine works. So since then, in the last few hundred years, as science got rid of this notion of a God who created it all, they kept the machine analogy, but they just got rid of the sort of outside source of, of divinity. And, but what that meant is that the machine didn't have any intrinsic purpose. Even hunter-gatherers saw nature as having some intrinsic purpose. Spirits were everywhere. Um, and they didn't question that. They, they were, might be scary, but they were still there. From the scientific revolution onwards, nature was desacralized. It's just a resource to exploit. And it's no surprise that there in the 17th century was not just when the scientific revolution began, but also when capitalism first began in its modern form, where the corporation, uh, this, um, this uh, for-profit limited liability corporation first got developed as a way to exploit and extract value from the rest of nature and other human beings that were non-white Europeans. And, and speaking of whiteness, it was actually where the whole notion of whiteness and racism in its modern uh, form first began too, where white European Christians, males, believed they were the ones who were truly doing God's work and all other people needed to be exploited as part of that system for their own benefit uh, and for them to sort of learn the, the true source of light coming from their ways of thinking. That's the worldview that then became our dominant global worldview today in different forms. I think I want to bring out two things from that, which is that one is that the crisis of, um, so that there are two kind of at least two i'd say interlinked kind of crises at the present one was just the meaning crisis because what you said is we as as kind of god disappeared for that and you have this machine you're left with sort of a meaningless universe um i think you quote stephen weinberg uh, kind of in in your recent book and aren't many others you're left with this kind of purposeless kind of sort of dead universe and we're just like we're just then these machines you know once you kind of fall into a logical conclusion and i think it's Weber, who I always think is one of the great thinkers of modernity and, you know, um, the sociologist is, you know, like the magic has gone out of the world, this disenchantment. Um, and, and in a way, you can trace that. I think the other point your book is trace that all the way back to Plato. I mean, Heidegger has this point, I think, very accurately as well, that this metaphysical wrong turn versus Heraclitus and others that Plato and Parmenides, which just plays out all the way then through the scientific revolution, leads us inevitably to nihilism. Um, and therefore this, both the kind of socioeconomic crisis, uh, which is the over-exploitation, the kind of the just endless, uh, I think the winnego, uh, as you call it, like the, uh, the, the kind of animal just devouring, not necessarily bad intention, just kind of just set loose, and also the meaning crisis are interlinked in these worldviews that come out of this, this kind of culminate in modernity in the 17th century. I mean, I think there again, just to ask one question on that before we come to alternative. And I actually want to say one other thing, which is you said it earlier, and I want to re-emphasize it, which is every worldview has extraordinary benefits at the beginning in it. It's not obvious what the the downsides, just like agriculture at the beginning, not that it was a bad thing either in a way, but even in the we wouldn't it wouldn't have been obvious when you first planted those seeds similarly lots of wonderful things that came out of modernity maybe racism too but also the declaration of human rights also the french revolution liberty egality fraternity 
incredible yes. shifts that positive happened. Also, the positive shifts of our science and things we've discovered, as you write repeatedly in your book, just to emphasize, you say we should deeply acknowledge we none of us want to go back to a world before penicillin. We're not saying that. What we're saying, though, is that when we're stuck like Uncle Bob, trapped in that worldview, we can't transcend it or transclude it. We can't take yes. the things that are useful in it, but see that those truths are partial. I think that that's something I want to just emphasize. And I know it's something you say, but the the, the, the danger of partial truths. Um, so we are, of course, partly competitive. Of course we are. <laughs> but if it, that's all we are, then it becomes yes. a trap for ourselves. In similarly, if we only there are aspects of reality that are reductionist or which are machine like clearly, mm -hmm. but if we think that that's all reality is, that's right, then we become very trapped. And that particularly when taken to their conclusion, particularly when paradigms break down, <laughs> particularly when paradigms, I think we could say become exhausted. Yeah, that well, is when the problems happen. So, can you just to bring to that yeah. point? I, well, I've got two questions. I think I might come ask you two questions. Well, I go with this one. My question was maybe, may I ask the first one, what led to the shift then? So you talked about what led to the shift to agriculture and that shifted the worldview. What was the, and it was maybe less, what was the shift to kind of modernity, if we could call yeah, it Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and this is kind of what's interesting is that if we saw that first shift as being externally driven, in terms of things happened to cause people to make sense of things in a different way. That scientific revolution actually was more endogenously or internally driven. And we can actually, I, I like to think of all these shifts and human culture itself as being part of complex systems. And uh, yeah. what's interesting with complex systems is that they can change either through um, significant exogenous shocks or through internal um, uh, ways of things beginning to connect up in different ways that then actually change the system from within in a fundamental way. With the scientific revolution, we saw that more internally. It wasn't like something happened to force people to rethink things in a different way, but um, a stronger and stronger ties, new ways of making sense of things using this kind of um, very powerful scientific methodology began to become so powerful, people connected up things like the Royal Society of London, things like that. People actually connected these ideas up and together they sort of meshed up this new network that then showed its power by actually making things work in ways that were so much more effective. So that it only took a few generations for people to just totally rethink things coming from this internally driven sense, which was a powerful and at the time revolutionary and wonderfully creative new way of thinking. So you have people like Francis Bacon um, looking at how, look, we can conquer nature, which um, we look back and say, oh no, that's was the cause of all this problem. Actually, at the time, it was this wonderful thing where humans could actually find ways to um, use their powers to make life work in better ways for themselves and for others around them. And Francis Bacon, for all the fact that I denigrates these ideas in my book and other people do, and he saw this as being something that could be done for the benefit of all people. He didn't see it as part of exploitation, but as part yeah. of great benefits. Um, unfortunately, his ideas got um, uh, taken and used in negative ways, just like is true of other people like Adam Smith, who are, you know, voice, um, mouthpieces of this modern uh, worldview that actually they would never have bought into at all. Um, so, so can I bring you then to this question? Sorry, to, is then 
just to come in there, give you a point, is say then what, so what we would say, so we acknowledge all the positive, there's an aspect of exhaustion, which I, I mean, I don't want to spend on too much time on this school because I think it, it's something in other situations, you might, you know, the climate crisis, the environment, you know, that, that flow out of sort of catalysm on kind of like just on autopilot um, and also the, this meaning crisis. But I'd like to ask you then, so, we're kind of maybe coming just like sort of the, the previous paradigm, if you like, the agricultural pre-modern paradigm was coming to an end at some point and the, the new paradigm was being born. You know, there's that famous page of Gramsci, you know, the, 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 old, the old is dying, but the yet is not yet born. Where do you think we are? What do you think is like, what do you think is coming? What do you think is right the new paradigm or what would it could it the positive version could look like right right sure <clears throat> well um and so ultimately the way to answer that is to still keep on this theme about what causes these transitions we we say what's going to cause our transition right now and here we actually have both exogenous and endogenous factors we have exogenous factors and um, which is things like climate breakdown ecological destruction so to your point about um, the old worldview being exhausted, it's not so much that the worldview itself is exhausted, but the worldview has caused such consumption of the living earth that it is literally exhausting life by sucking it up <clears throat> in this exploitative way that it's doing. So it's causing um, these exogenous factors to force people to rethink the world, whether it's floods or wildfires or the simple or the sixth extinction of species and everything else we're dealing with. And there's also this internal change because this is where, and this is where each of us can have a part to play in this, that we're actually looking at a, a shifting realization of our deep interconnectedness. And that arises from people realizing ultimately that this old worldview is bankrupt. And as new generations, people like Greta Thunberg and people of her generation grow up and see this world falling apart, they are no longer going to take for granted what they've been told by their parents' generation. They'll say, no, this doesn't work. Sorry, we don't buy this crap. There's a different way of making sense of things. We did see a shift in worldview like this happening, for example, in traditional China, where you had a Confucian way of seeing things for millennia. Then the West came and they kind of destroyed the, they humiliated and took away the, the sort of um, that sense of belonging that a traditional Chinese thought had. And new generations say, we reject Confucianism. We're going to buy into these ideas of the West. And they're still doing that. They've done obviously a powerful job of that in modern China. But so what you see is that worldviews can change when there is enough, when there's exogenous drivers undermining it, and when people see something different as a way of making sense coming from within. That's where this worldview of interconnectedness that I described in the web of meaning has this potential to transform the way we see things. And it's a worldview that is both new and ancient. And that's where both in modern science, whether it's evolutionary biology, cognitive science, systems thinking, above all, complexity science, a network theory, all these are sciences of connectedness. So looking at connectedness doesn't mean being anti-scientific, quite the contrary. 
Um, it actually means using scientific understanding to realize that actually this reductionist way of making sense of things, while it's very powerful in its own way, is not the only way. In fact, it's more like a layer. And then we can build from that on looking at the emergent la new layers of complexity and understanding how that works. But those very findings of modern science point us to the insights that we that have been there for millennia from indigenous knowledge around the world, from Buddhism, from Taoism, from Neo-Confucianism. And they're all insights based on our deep interconnectedness, insights that actually we are not a separate mind and body. We're actually totally integrated organisms and that we're not separate from each other. We're part of this kind of communal group identity. That doesn't mean losing our individuality. It means that we can find our individuality the most. We can fulfill ourselves the most, recognizing that we're part of a larger group more than just our separate adamantine sort of um, boundary itself. And ultimately, most importantly, and this is where I love um, the phrasing you use in your organization a lot, we are our life itself. We are all part of life. Um, Mm. Oh, um, the great humanitarian Albert Schweitzer um, said it best, I think, in the 20th century when he said, um, I am life that wills to live in the midst of life that wills to live, like recognizing this deep way in which we're all interconnected with all of life. And once we see that, everything changes. We no longer see nature as its resource to exploit. We recognize that flourishing of ourselves as individuals only exists within a flourishing community, which only exists within a flourishing and regenerated earth. And we begin to look at the problems we're facing with as a global society in a totally different systems-oriented way, rather than separate little mechanistic problems to be fixed. That is the, the potential for the transformation that could lead to that positive future for humanity is um, both externally, these exogenous factors, basically um, unweaving the tight knit of this modern worldview as it's basically the edges fray, everything starts to fall apart. But as they fall apart, um, it's possible to kind of reweave a different way of meaning making um, and not just the meaning-making, but how we live in our economy, in our society, in our politics, reweave it from the inside, not wait for the old system to collapse, but reweave a different way of, of making sense of things from within the society, so that as that old thing fragments, we've got something actually fundamentally different, um, but using the same threads so that we can see a continuity in our future rather than this collapse and having to like start again from the beginning. Wow, thank you. In a moment, I'm gonna to just to emphasize that Theo's written in the chat, but I wanna to emphasize to everyone, please do, if you have questions, I mean, there'll be a chance to also ask them, but put them in the chat or put your hand, kind of put your hand up if you have got stuff we'd like to ask, we'll come to that in a moment. I suppose one question, um, there are kind of two things I think you also mentioned at the beginning that I want to come to, which is um, one of the powerful aspects, and I don't think it's just of, the, of modernity, I think it's of a current state. I mean, so, so we'll make a couple of things. First of all, to say, you talk a lot about systems thinking, and, and I think uh, I know that I can talk a bit in the abstract. I mean, I partly got, I, I, I think, what do we mean um, sometimes by that compared to how we've currently been thinking? I've 
there's a wonderful book I know that you cited as well uh, by Susan Simard on the, about the mother tree. And I think the analogy there was that, you know, one story I think that really struck me there was just at the very beginning, she's being employed by the Canadian government, basically, like they're going to put pesticide, like we want to maximize the growth of trees. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to kill everything else. We're just going to put Roundup, basically glyphosate, on kill every, she's, and she's doing these experiments. We're going to go and put glyphosate on every other thing that isn't the trees we want to grow. And what's incredible is they, you know, logically in the kind of old paradigm, that makes sense, right? We want to maximize tree growth. There's these other things that are competitors, unnecessary competitors, you know, other trees, other bushes. And if we nuke those, that means there's more light, there's more nutrients, there's more stuff for the trees that we want to grow. But what do they actually find is that isn't the case. And particularly one of the things was about birch trees versus the pines, which is the birches seem to be taking up stuff, but they actually, they actually send nitrogen across to the pine trees, a completely different species. And then the pine trees later on, sometimes many years later, send nutrients back. And there's this kind of symbiosis. And that's what we mean by the system thinking aspect, I think is one example, rather than the linear aspect, there's ecological and this kind of quite, it's more complex um, aspect of, of things. I think why I mentioned that is also how does transition happen? You talk about it, these four stages in your book, the way that any kind of stable system, in this case, a cultural paradigm, is in a conservation stage often resisting. And at some point, there's this sort of this breakdown. Um, and then we hope reorganization, the reweaving of the web. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, um, I think I also saw something by someone who was writing tomorrow, which is when you look back in human history, unfortunately, no, no, no major changes have happened without a breakdown. <laughs> People, you could say, look, wouldn't it be nice if we just did this, this transition? You know, like we can see, we could be wise, but no, we're going to need to have a crash to have a, to have a breakthrough. I guess that's what that, and what that also led me to was something that, that I wanted to talk at the end about, which is that, and I sort of had it in my own style there, a bit of a, it was, one of the things about the current conservation of the current paradigm, the kind of way that, that paradigms or any ecosystem maybe resist change in a positive, stay stable by resisting change. Uh, and I love this phrase, you know, the, be the best trick the devil ever pulled was persuading you he didn't exist. Um, similarly, the best trick at the moment is that there's no kind of, um, there's no, there's no kind of, there's no way to get to alternative. I mean, Roberto Ungo, I like as a thinker, talks about the false necessity. Mm -hmm. Either what you want is radical, which is dangerous, or it's some incremental patch to the, uh, the current system. And right. you talk about this at the end of your book, uh, and it, what it leads to is hopelessness. I think one of the most profound things I noticed compared to like 50 years ago, when I talk to at least my parents about the 60s, or mm -hmm. you even feel just reading politics in the late 19th century, you know, people might have had terrible conditions, but they were fighting. They were like, we can change things. And often what I noticed today is this incredible sense of resignation. And at yeah. the end of your book, I think you have this very beautiful metaphor of the, of the rice pile, because it's both a complex system um, and uh, an example. So I don't know if you could share that, because it's something you talk about at the end of the book is that, you know, it's not, that we why we could have hope in the face of what can seem a very very challenging uh situation where there's some people are like you know the climate you know jim bandel is just all like just resign like just accept adapt to the situation i'd love you to speak to that a little bit yes absolutely and i do see also um there's a a question in the chat that Liam we'll put, um, we'll kind of asking about that, yeah. um, that that particular question of did things necessarily 
happen through crashes. And I, but I, I do think it's a, a very good point. Um, it's if you will, uh, one way of looking at it is that um, when situations change, a worldview doesn't have to rely on a crash in order to change. Um, it actually, uh, oftentimes, if the worldview doesn't change, the crash will happen because people need to uh, realize that there is a different way of um, relating to the environment. And that's the thing that we, um, we look at now. Uh, we may be headed for a crash. We may be headed for a collapse. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that, but it's not necessarily the case. And that's where, but I, but I think um, what is so key here is that it's a little bit like threading the needle and um, where there's one tiny little eye <clears throat> that we have to that we have to sort of thread through. Like, how can we even how can that even be possible when we see so many things going wrong at a faster and faster rate? We have this incredible rise in inequality. This and um, all the destruction that's taking place in the world right now of um, life's riches um, is based on the current GDP, and uh, the economist forecast is going to triple the global gross domestic product, which basically measures the rate at which our society is consuming the earth and turning humans into basically zombies as part of the financialized world um, that they live in. That GDP is going to triple um, by the 2060 or whatever. So how could that even be the, how could that even happen, we might ask. Um, and I think that what we have to realize is that that can um, the change needs to happen because people themselves see this unraveling and they actually get they get attracted to what is actually possible. And one way we can almost look at it, I think, that I think is kind of powerful is like imagine all the different possible future scenarios being like um, imagine like a big screen TV with lots and lots millions of tiny little pixels um, and you're in a black room um, and this this screen all those pixels almost every one of them is dark meaning like it might lead to a very bad outcome but there's just one or two of those pixels actually has light and all you need is one or two of those pixels to have light and your attention is drawn to that tiny little pixel of light because everything else is dark and we're naturally drawn to the light similarly I think those of us who seem to be a, a very small group in the global context right now, who are offering this pathway towards the light, basically a flourishing future for humanity. It might seem like a lonely path to be on. It might seem like, well, this is not going anywhere. But as things get darker, as um, all the different um, incompatibilities of our current system uh, begin to like lead to it falling apart, there's this potential that that's what people will, will be drawn to. Um, you know, Milton Friedman, uh, who come from my alma mater, the University of Chicago, as, as we were um, joking about earlier, like, you know, the, he was one of the great spokespersons for the neoliberal worldview that has kind of taken over our world right now. But he talked very powerfully about how um, when, when a crisis hits, people look for the ideas that are lying around and they'll use those to move forward. Um, that's exactly what happened. And that's where the uh, Mont Pelerin Society um, spent decades from the 1940s 
all the way to the late 70s, working on putting up these, these destructive ideas of neoliberalism, individualism, they, they looked like they were going nowhere for decades. But then when a crisis hit and people had to ask themselves questions about the worldview of, uh, that had led to sort of Keynesian economics back in the 70s, they turned to neoliberal ideology because it had been thought through and it seemed like something alternative. That's what we need to do now is offer really well thought out, meaningful alternatives, not like the old fashioned right versus left. To your point, you said Rufus earlier, totally agree. The, um, the traditional left was just as much into consuming the earth and seeing the separation from nature as the traditional right. The only argument over was about how you divide up the pie, not about trying to make the pie as big as possible at the expense of the rest of life. We're looking at a very different way of making sense of things. And what a lot of in people increasingly are calling it, and I love this, this phrase, is an ecological civilization. This notion of fundamentally altering the foundation of civilization from one that is wealth accumulating, extractive and exploitative, our current civilization, to a life-affirming civilization that's built on this notion of ultimately the ultimate objective is to set the conditions for the flourishing of all humans and all the rest of life on a regenerated earth. That's the possibility. And that's what a lot of different people in different ways are moving towards, whether it's the degrowth uh, <clears throat> movement in Europe. Um, <clears throat> people like um, uh, Kate Rayworth talking about donut economics, wonderful new way of thinking that could lead to that. Uh, ecological civilization, indigenous ways of knowing and acting uh, around the world. People are turning to that great wisdom from the past and, and looking at things like the rights of nature um, as, a, as a way of looking at reorganizing civilization to one that actually bases on the principles of life, not the principles of exploitation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think that point that also one has which is that you talk to i borrowing much from your book at the end which is that if you think of a rice pile which is a classic example in theory of, from complex system stuff and you're dropping right you're dropping grains onto a rice pile for a long period it seems like nothing's happening um and then at some point there's an avalanche i think that's a good point also about transitions or you you meant or even the mont pelerin societies you give an example you you're when you're ready and that moment comes if you're ready to be able to shape where that avalanche goes to and, and it can seem kind of hopeless for a long period and suddenly there can be a lot happen and i also like in your book which is that we should also see that if you look closely at the rice pile even before the avalanche as you drop the grains on there are shifts there are adjustments i mean even your books in this call i think I mean, I, I've been interested in these kind of areas for almost my whole life, uh, certainly the last adult life, last 20, 20 plus years. And I really feel something is happening right now. And I want to thank everyone on the call. I think something is happening and I want to come to questions and, you know, something's here and we don't know quite what it is. So I think that there is that moment when you start to feel the sat, the rice pile shifting and, yeah. and every, every yeah. grain counts, every grain counts. So I want to bring us and to then, question. Yeah, well, you say, and then I want to make sure. Let me first actually question. just to um, elucidate about the rice pile because I, it is a great story, and 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 you bring it in. But some people might be scratching their heads a bit. What is that? What is it actually referring to? And yeah, to your point, I I end um, this new book, the 
Weber Nino on this story of the rice pile because basically it was a, a, an experiment done by complexity scientists who were looking at how avalanches occurred. And they, they made a pile of rice and they monitored every time you would drop a grain of rice into this pile to try to understand um, what's basically called the power law of how one, you know, lots and lots of different grains might do nothing, but then one grain leads, leads to a whole avalanche and the whole pile um, like kind of shifts based on that one grain. And I tried this experiment myself, but what I found so interesting about it wasn't so much that it followed this power law, which is exactly what they were experimenting on. But when I would drop a grain, it seemed like nothing happened, right? But then a few seconds later, I'd notice the whole pile itself seemed to be coming alive. It's like there was a movement here and a movement there and a movement there. And I realized that one little grain was creating these tiny little micro dynamics that led to other changes and other changes. So that over a while, different, the whole system was kind of readjusting. And so even though there was maybe one grain that caused the avalanche, actually it wasn't that one grain that caused the avalanche. The avalanche had been caused by the cumulative action of all yes. the grains interacting with each other, getting ready, setting the conditions for the avalanche to be done by that one rice that, that did. And that's the great learning. That's the realization that each of us, we're part, and you know, if we're talking about inert pieces of rice, that's a complex system in itself. But what about the incredible complexity of billions of human beings interacting with each other with ideas, actions, and all this sort of thoughts, language? That is this, like, you know, to the nth degree, trillions of times more complex. But each of us are part of that pile web. of this interconnected web of meaning, basically. And every action we take, every thought, that we express in language every time we 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 make a decision to do one thing versus another even when we make decisions not to do something about something we could do something about each of these has an impact on this system so that the future is not some sort of spectator sport it's not something that's going to happen um, regardless of what we do as we watch it and we can put odds and oh it's going to be a collapse or it's going to be good or whatever no the future is basically like a verb it's a co-created process that each of us are actually contributing to right now and in our lives and what we do and the beauty of this rice pile analogy is realizing that none of us knows ultimately the impact of what each of us is doing None of us knows if a particular conversation, a particular choice we make, then impacts somebody else, who then impacts somebody else, who then happens to be a Greta Thunberg, somebody we don't even know because they're three or four degrees of separation away from us. But that person then does something that causes millions of people to react in a certain way. And all, we don't ever know that maybe it was something we did that led to the conditions for that to happen. That's mm -hmm. an awesome responsibility when we realize that, because we realize we actually are part of whatever happens to this future, but it also takes the burden off a bit because we realize that we're all part of this great um, transformation that may or may not happen, but may happen. And by realizing that we realize it's not, it's, it's more about how we connect with what others are doing, even more than how, what we're doing ourselves to really make this transformation something that can actually be realized in our, in our future. Mm, thank you. Well, I want to now come to questions. 
apologies for the quick interruption, but in the next portion of the episode, Rufus and Jeremy answer a question that was posed to them in the chat on the Zoom call. The question was as follows. I sense that whilst there are a lot of new counter-systemic paradigms popping up, environmentalism, anti-racism, anti-capitalism, etc., their mainstream proponents, including Greta Thunberg and Black Lives Matter activists, seem to be sticking to the conflict-oriented mindset of existing old worldviews. It often seems that there is little momentum for increased empathy, understanding, bridging divides in society. Meanwhile, progressive movements seem just as capable of othering and holding hypocritical views as hegemonic structures. What do you think of this and how do you think we can increase intergroup connections in society? So for Noor, I mean, I want to say, I basically, I think what you're getting at, I so very, uh, we very, I, I personally, but also life itself, and I think I very deeply agree with, and that it's something that is missing is um, that kind of, the, the sort of the bridging, that there is a tendency, sometimes on the other side, to be like the, the kind of the othering and the right, like, I'm right. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much I know something I want to ask Jeremy, but I think it's something that Ken Wilber uh, nails in his critique of kind of what he would call the net, the, the cultural paradigm, what he calls sort of green. I mean, that just because it comes from spiral dynamics and these colors, which is there's a tendency in the kind of, I think it's the intermediate between possibly this and the next paradigm, but there's a tendency to make wrong. And that his point is an all first here kind of approaches, whatever comes next tends to make the previous thing wrong. It's better than it. It's superior yeah. to it. I'm better. Now, there's there's a subtlety to, to this, and I find it I find it most deeply. I noticed it in Buddhism and Zen, which is like you know, like there's this kind of weird, um, you know, Buddha. There's there's Buddha talks about right view, but he doesn't. He was never don't like I'm better than the than the Hindus or the Vedas. It was a kind of look. There's discernment. There is like not being not racist is is probably wiser than being racist in a certain weird you know way but it doesn't mean like oh my god i'm superior to you so there's this kind of like yes. movement i think of the moral judgment is one mm -hmm. aspect um so i would say i think it's i think yeah. that this is uh. and, and i think to ask i'm gonna let jeremy speak but to ask your question practically um i think that there has got to be um one thing is kind of if you want to ask, I also think, you know, I think a lot of this, there's, there's something coming up at the moment. The degree of polarization difficulty is that there's a kind of, there is a bunch of trauma or shadow that we haven't dealt with as, as, as societies. And so one of the things is that ironically, and it goes back to a point Jerry made at the beginning, there's a cognitive part. So I could say, let's, let's go and have meetings where we talk to other people of differing views. You know, that's something we could do. But there's also dealing with our shadows. One of the reasons there's so much it's so difficult to do that at the moment is there is a lot of suffering that's unresolved a lot of things that haven't been heard so i think if i were to say anything it's somehow a listening for others particularly others who have different views from us like somehow a deep listening and to do that um, i speak for myself you know let's just say in a relationship you know of course i should just listen to my partner you know like when she's you know, when we're having an argument you know but why don't i because i'm suffering there's a I, i'm reacting to the suffering in myself yeah. so i think the other point is there's some really like deep work one of the things i think is also difficult about the new paradigm and most previous ones have just dominated whatever was before them if that's not to be the case there's some quite deep internal work that we need to engage in possibly collectively to be able to have that space to hear one another in that way. 
I want to let Jeremy answer, but I would just say that that's the other thing um, that, that I would really, really bring to it. Yeah. You know, I just really love, um, Nora, that you raised this question and thank you for doing that. So, um, yeah, and ultimately what it has to do with is, the, is this realization that even progressive movements, other like do all this antagonism and othering. And um, if we're talking about separation being the underlying foundation of this worldview that's so destructive, then seeing separation between us and those opponents on the other side only exacerbates that same, the same difficulties that we're talking about. So any kind of proposed solution within that context actually just leads to more problems. Absolutely, I'm with you. And that's why I emphasized originally when I was talking about Uncle Bob and sort of making fun of what a pain. Um, actually, we have Uncle Bob within each of us. And there's this real beautiful quote um, I, I um, refer to at the end of my book um, by somebody called Stoles in, in Detroit who says, um, we must not only heal the wounds that suffering causes, but we must also heal the wounds that cause the suffering. Like it's, and it's kind of, and you know, you're right there next to Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh, again, somebody I quote towards the end of the book, um, is the most beautiful exponent of this realization that once your identity expands to include all of life, um, and the whole universe, it expands to include also the people who are causing the problems. He you know, writes this amazing poem um, about you know, this pirate who is raping this girl who then um, jumped off the boat uh, to her death. And it's so easy to feel you know, anger to the pirate and empathy and compassion for the girl getting raped. And his point was, if I was if I had been that pirate, if I'd been raised in the village and beaten and um, given the trauma that that pirate had, I would have been that pirate. Um, and it's too, I'm not going to attack myself. Uh, you know, it's that's that, that's not the. So it's like this notion of really being empathic, and it's this. Th there's a, a vision that um, actually here in California, there's a activist um, spiritual. Uh, um, rabbi called Rabbi Michael Lerner, who's written a book called Revolutionary Love, which I love the phrase of that, because the point is, it's about, it's not about being nice to the other side and trying to find compromises and saying, okay, well, the Republicans say there's no such thing as climate change. So why don't we kind of agree that maybe there's half climate change and try to, uh, no, compromise is not the answer. It's about loving the things you're fighting for, but it's also about realizing that the agents of that destruction are themselves suffering. And they, on, they themselves are not the enemy. What they're doing is causing the destruction. But to the extent that we can actually reach out with love and look at the fact that those people crying slogans of hate on the, on the barricades, those people themselves can only be at that place of hate if they have that hate within themselves. And the suffering that they are actually experiencing within themselves is something that we need to have compassion to. Not again, meaning that we don't push back strongly against what they're doing, but we realize that actually um, every one of those people were once, you know, cooing infants wanting love and they didn't get the love and they got to be hurt and um, given these barriers and hardness within them that caused them to be like that. By approaching it in that way, it allows us not just to actually stand up for what we know is right and be agents for life in what's needed, 
but it allows us also to build these deep bridges, not so much, and they may not seem so obvious like bridges, but almost like underground tunnels, if you will, to those deep connections with those other people who also want to feel they're doing good. It's a very rare psychopath who actually wants to feel I'm destroying the world. I'm really like glad about this. And, you know, I'm a bad person. I mean, most people don't, even the people we see as acting uh, for bad, they think they're doing good. Just in the same way that I thought I was doing something good when I was starting that internet company, helping, you know, encouraging people to get more in debt uh, so they could buy more consumer goods. Um, but it's what you need is to help people to recognize that actually um, if they can connect with deeper layers of identity and expand out from that separate notion of self, that they can actually begin to shift their own ways of meaning making. And that, to your point, Rufus, is not by attacking them and saying you're bad because that only gets you to increase the barriers within yourself. Um, but to that great uh, quote attributed to Rumi, you know, your job is um, not to seek out love, but to seek out the barriers within yourself that prevent that love. And similarly, our job is to um, seek out the barriers within ourselves and others that prevent that love and dissolve those barriers through love, not through attacking. So it's a hard call. It's, a, again, something that all of us need to work on. Um, any of us who haven't reached that level of a Thich Nhat Hanh or total enlightenment. So this is not like me sort of from the mountaintop saying what, uh, you know, oh, here's how you do it. And um, it's, it's, the, it's the intentional journey that each of us need to be on if we are to create that world that we want to live in, that world of interconnectedness from that worldview of interconnectedness. I want to, we are, at, we're kind of, at, we're at time formally um, but I do want to just share, thank everyone for your presence, your time, and your attention. I think I will draw it to a close around now. I might even at this point arrange, it won't necessarily be another imaginary society, but a follow-up session with Jeremy, maybe at some point, because anything we didn't get to cover today, because I've got some more questions. It's been amazing. Um, I just want to say that this is, yeah, really a huge thank you to Jeremy, not only for your time here today, but for the the time and presence and energy you put into your the works, which are really amazing. Um, I think we, obviously people can find them on your, I think we just make sure we put your link to your website in the chat. Obviously people, I think we put it in the, the communications, uh, the books are for available for order now. And I've, as a reader of both of them, I can really recommend them. They're amazing. So yeah, just thank you. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Well, great. And th thank you, Rufus, for reaching out, for making this happen, and for everyone who's been part of, part of this group. Yeah, I just love what your group um, stands for and, and, and what you're doing. And so um, I'm really delighted that I could just contribute and be part of what, uh, of what you're doing. Actually, living that worldview of interconnectedness is, is what I see ultimately as yeah. what, you're, what, you're, um, what your whole group is about. So thank you to you all.